0: the preamble part nine of laws by plato translated by benjamin jowett this librivox recording is in the public domain book ten the greatest wrongs arise out of youthful insolence and the greatest of all are committed against public temples they are in the second degree great when private rites and sepulchres are insulted in the third degree, when committed against parents, in the fourth degree, when they are done against the authority or property of the rulers, in the fifth degree, when the rights of individuals are violated. Most of these offenses have been already considered, but there remains the question of admonition and punishment of offenses against the gods. Let the admonition be in the following terms. No man who ever intentionally did or said anything impious had a true belief in the existence of the gods, but either he thought that there were no gods or that they did not care about men, or that they were easily appeased by sacrifices and prayers. What shall we say or do to such persons? My good sir, let us first hear the jests which they in their superiority will make upon us, What will they say? Probably something of this kind. Strangers, you are right in thinking that some of us do not believe in the existence of the gods, while others assert that they do not care for us, and others that they are propitiated by prayers and offerings. But we want you to argue with us before you threaten. You should prove to us by reasonable evidence that there are gods, and that they are too good to be bribed. Poets, priests, prophets, rhetoricians, even the best of them, speak to us of atoning for evil and not of avoiding it. From legislators who profess to be gentle, we ask for instruction, which may at least have the persuasive power of truth, if no other. What have you to say? Well, there is no difficulty in proving the being of the gods. The sun and earth and stars moving in their courses... The recurring seasons furnish proofs of their existence, and there is the general opinion of mankind. I fear that the unbelievers, not that I care for their opinion, will despise us. You are not aware that their impiety proceeds not from sensuality, but from ignorance taking the garb of wisdom. What do you mean? At Athens there are tales current both in prose and verse, of a kind which are not tolerated in a well-regulated state like yours. The oldest of them relate the origin of the world and the birth and life of the gods. These narratives have a bad influence on family relations, but as they are old, we will let them pass and consider another kind of tales invented by the wisdom of a younger generation who, if any one argues for the existence of the gods and claims that the stars have a divine being, insists that these are mere earth and stones, which can have no care of human things, and that all theology is a cooking up of words. Now what course ought we to take? Shall we suppose some impious man to charge us with assuming the existence of the gods and make a defense? Or shall we leave the preamble and go on to the laws? There is no hurry, and we have often said that the shorter and worse method should not be preferred to the longer and better. The proof that there are gods who are good and the friends of justice is the best preamble of all our laws. Come, let us talk with the impious, who have been brought up from their infancy in the belief of religion, and have heard their own fathers and mothers praying for them and talking with the gods, as if they were absolutely convinced of their existence." who have seen mankind prostrate in prayer at the rising and setting of the sun and moon, and at every turn of fortune, and have dared to despise and disbelieve all this? Can we keep our temper with them when they compel us to argue on such a theme? We must, or, like them, we shall go mad, though with more reason. Let us select one of them and address him as follows. O my son, you are young. Time and experience will make you change many of your opinions. Do not be hasty in forming a conclusion about the divine nature, and let me mention to you a fact which I know. You and your friends are not the first or the only persons who have had these notions about the gods. There are always a considerable number who are infected by them. I have known many myself and can assure you that no one who was an unbeliever in his youth ever persisted till he was old in denying the existence of the gods. The two other opinions, first, that the gods exist and have no care of men, secondly, that they care for men but may be propitiated by sacrifices and prayers, may indeed last through life in a few instances, but even this is not common i would beg of you to be patient and learn the truth of the legislator and others in the meantime abstain from impiety so far our discourse has gone well i will now speak of a strange doctrine which is regarded by many as the crown of philosophy They affirm that all things come into being either by art or nature or chance, and that the greater things are done by nature and chance, and the lesser things by art, which receiving from nature the greater creations, molds and fashions, all those lesser works, which are termed works of art. Their meaning is that fire, water, earth, and air all exist by nature and chance and not by art and that out of these according to certain chance affinities of opposites the sun the moon the stars and the earth have been framed not by any action of mind but by nature and chance only thus in their opinion the heaven and earth were created as well as the animals and plants Art came later and is of mortal birth. By her power were invented certain images and very partial imitations of the truth, of which kind are the creations of musicians and painters. But they say that there are other arts which combine with nature and have a deeper truth, such as medicine, husbandry, gymnastic... Also, the greater part of politics they imagine to cooperate with nature, but in a less degree having more of art, while legislation is declared by them to be wholly a work of art. How do you mean? In the first place they say that the gods exist neither by nature nor by art, but by the laws of states, which are different in different countries, and that virtue is one thing by nature and another by convention, and that justice is altogether conventional, made by law, and having authority for the moment only. This is repeated to young men by sages and poets, and leads to impiety, and the pretended life according to nature, and disobedience to law, for nobody believes the gods to be such as the law affirms. How true, and oh, how injurious, two states and to families. But then what should the lawgiver do? Should he stand up in the state and threaten mankind with the severest penalties if they persist in their unbelief, while he makes no attempt to win them by persuasion? Nay, stranger, the legislator ought never to weary of trying to persuade the world that there are gods, and he should declare that law and art exist by nature. Yes, Cleinias, but these are difficult and tedious questions." And shall our patience, which was not exhausted in the inquiry about music or drink, fail now that we are discoursing about the gods? There may be a difficulty in framing laws, but when written down, they remain, and time and diligence will make them clear. If they are useful, there would be neither reason nor religion in rejecting them on account of their length. Most true, and the general spread of unbelief shows that the legislator should do something in vindication of the laws when they are being undermined by bad men. He should. You agree with me, Cleinias, that the heresy consists in supposing earth, air, fire, and water to be the first of all things. These the heretics call nature, conceiving them to be prior to the soul. I agree. You would further agree that natural philosophy is the source of this impiety. The study appears to be pursued in a wrong way. In what way do you mean? The error consists in transposing first and second causes. They do not see that the soul is before the body and before all other things, and the author and ruler of them all. And if the soul is prior to the body, then the things of the soul are prior to the things of the body. In other words, opinion, attention, Mind, art, law, are prior to sensible qualities, and the first and greater works of creation are the results of art and mind, whereas the works of nature, as they are improperly termed, are secondary and subsequent. Why do you say improperly? Because when they speak of nature they seem to mean the first creative power, but if the soul is first and not fire and air, then the soul above all things may be said to exist by nature and this can only be on the supposition that the soul is prior to the body. Shall we try to prove that it is so? By all means. I fear that the greenness of our argument will ludicrously contrast with the ripeness of our ages, but as we must go into the water and the stream is strong, I will first attempt to cross by myself, and if I arrive at the bank you shall follow. Remembering that you are unaccustomed to such discussions, I will ask and answer the questions myself while you listen in safety. But first I must pray the gods to assist at the demonstration of their own existence. If ever we are to call upon them, now is the time. Let me hold fast to the rope and enter into the depths. Shall I put the question to myself in this form? Are all things at rest? and is nothing in motion, or are some things in motion and some things at rest, the latter? And do they move in rest, some in one place, some in more? Yes. There may be one motion in the same place, as in revolution on an axis, which is imparted swiftly to the larger and slowly to the lesser circle. And there may be motion in different places, having sometimes two one center of motion and sometimes three more for when bodies in motion come against other bodies which are at rest they are divided by them and five when they are caught between other bodies coming from opposite directions they unite with them and six they grow by union, and seven waste by dissolution, while their constitution remains the same, but are eight destroyed when their constitution fails. There is a growth from one dimension to two, and from a second to a third, which then becomes perceptible to sense. This process is called generation, and the opposite destruction. We have now enumerated all possible motions, with the exception of two. What are they? Just the two with which our inquiry is concerned, for our inquiry relates to the soul. There is one kind of motion which is only able to move other things. There is another which can move itself as well, working in composition and decomposition, by increase and diminution, by generation and destruction. Granted. Nine. That which moves and is moved by another is the ninth kind of motion. 10. That which is self-moved and moves others is the 10th. And this 10th kind of motion is the mightiest and is really the first and is followed by that which was improperly called the ninth. How do you mean? Must not that which is moved by others finally depend upon that which is moved by itself? Nothing can be affected by any transition prior to self-motion. Then the first and eldest principle of motion, whether in things at rest or not at rest, will be the principle of self-motion, and that which is moved by others and can move others will be the second. True. Let me ask another question. What is the name which is given to self-motion when manifested in any material substance? Life. And soul, too, is life. Very good. And are there not three kinds of knowledge? A knowledge, one, of the essence, two, of the definition, three, of the name. And sometimes the name leads us to ask the definition, sometimes the definition to ask the name. For example, number can be divided into equal parts, and when thus divided is termed even, and the definition of even and the word even refer to the same thing. Very true. And what is the definition of the thing which is named soul? must we not reply, the self-moved? And have we not proved that the self-moved is the source of motion in other things? Yes. And the motion which is not self-moved will be inferior to this. True. And if so, we shall be right in saying that the soul is prior and superior to the body, and the body by nature subject and inferior to the soul. Quite right. And we agreed that if the soul was prior to the body, the things of the soul were prior to the things of the body, certainly, and therefore desires and manners and thoughts and true opinions and recollections are prior to the length and breadth and force of bodies, to be sure. In the next place, we acknowledge that the soul is the cause of good and evil, just and unjust, if we suppose her to be the cause of all things, certainly, And the soul, which orders all things, must also order the heavens, of course. One soul or more? More. For less than two are inconceivable, one good, the other evil, most true. The soul directs all things by her movements, which we call will, consideration, attention, deliberation, opinion, true and false, joy, sorrow, courage, fear, hatred, love, and similar affections these are the primary movements and they receive the secondary movements of bodies and guide all things to increase and diminution separation and union and to all the qualities which accompany them cold hot heavy light hard soft white black sweet bitter These and other such qualities the soul herself, a goddess, uses when truly receiving the divine mind, she leads all things rightly to their happiness, but under the impulse of folly she works out an opposite result, for the controller of heaven and earth and the circle of the world is either the wise and good soul or the foolish and vicious soul working in them. What do you mean? If we say that the whole course and motion of heaven and earth is in accordance with the workings and reasonings of mind, clearly the best soul must have the care of the heaven and guide it along that better way. True. But if the heavens move wildly and disorderly, then they must be under the guidance of the evil soul. True again. What is the nature of the movement of the soul? We must not suppose that we can see and know the soul with our bodily eyes any more than we can fix them on the midday sun. It will be safer to look at an image only. How do you mean? Let us find among the ten kinds of motion an image of the motion of the mind. You remember, as we said, that all things are divided into two classes, and some of them were moved and some at rest yes and of those which were moved some were moved in the same place others in more places than one just so the motion which was in one place was circular like the motion of a spherical body and such a motion in the same place and in the same relations as an excellent image of the motion of mind very true The motion of the other sort which has no fixed place or manner or relation or order or proportion is akin to folly and nonsense. Very true. After what has been said, it is clear that since the soul carries round all things, some soul which is either very good or the opposite carries round the circumference of heaven, but that soul can be no other than the best, Again, the soul carries round the sun, moon, and stars, and if the sun has a soul, then either the soul of the sun is within and moves the sun as the human soul moves the body, or secondly, the sun is contained in some external air or fire which the soul provides and through which she operates, or thirdly, the course of the sun is guided by the soul, acting in a wonderful manner without a body. Yes, in one of those ways the soul must guide all things. And this soul of the sun, which is better than the sun, whether driving him in a chariot or employing any other agency, is by every man called a god. Yes, by every man who has any sense. And of the seasons, stars, moon, and year, in like manner it may be affirmed that the solar souls from which they derive their excellence are divine. And without insisting on the manner of their working, no one can deny that all things are full of gods, no one. And now let us offer an alternative to him who denies that there are gods. Either he must show that the soul is not the origin of all things, or he must live for the future in the belief that there are gods. Next, as to the man who believes in the gods but refuses to acknowledge that they take care of human things, let him too have a word of admonition best of men we will say to him some affinity to the gods leads you to honour them and to believe in them but you have heard the happiness of wicked men sung by poets and admired by the world and this has drawn you away from your natural piety or you have seen the wicked growing old in prosperity and leaving great offices to their children or you have watched the tyrant succeeding in his career of crime, and considering all these things, you have been led to believe in an irrational way, that the gods take no care of human affairs, that your error may not increase, I will endeavor to purify your soul. Do you, Megillus and Cleinias, make answer for the youth, and when we come to a difficulty, I will carry you over the water as I did before? Very good. He will easily be convinced that the gods care for the small as well as the great, for he heard what was said of their goodness and of their having all things under their care. He certainly heard. Then now let us inquire what is meant by the virtue of the gods. To possess mind belongs to virtue and the contrary to vice. That is what we say. And is not courage a part of virtue and cowardice of vice? Certainly and to the gods we ascribe virtues but idleness and indolence are not virtues of course not and is god to be conceived of as a careless indolent fellow such as the poet would compare to a stingless drone impossible can we be right in praising any one who cares for great matters and leaves the small to take care of themselves whether god or man he who does so must either think the neglect of such matters to be of no consequence or he is indolent and careless for surely neither of them can be charged with neglect if they fail to attend to something which is beyond their power certainly not And now we will examine the two classes of offenders who admit that there are gods, but say, the one that they may be appeased, the other that they take no care of small matters. Do they not acknowledge that the gods are omnipotent and omniscient, and also good and perfect? Certainly, then they cannot be indolent, for indolence is the offspring of idleness, and idleness of cowardice, and there is no cowardice in God. True, If the gods neglect small matters, they must either know or not know that such things are not to be regarded. But of course they know that they should be regarded, and knowing they cannot be supposed to neglect their duty, overcome by the seductions of pleasure or pain. Impossible. And do not all human things share in soul? And is not man the most religious of animals, and the possession of the gods?' And the gods who are the best of owners will surely take care of their property, small or great. Consider further that the greater the power of perception, the less the power of action. For it is harder to see and hear the small than the great, but easier to control them. Suppose a physician who had to cure a patient, would he ever succeed if he attended to the great and neglected the little? Impossible. Is not life made up of littles? The pilot, general, householder, statesman all attend to small matters, and the builder will tell you that large stones do not lie well without small ones, and God is not inferior to mortal craftsmen who in proportion to their skill are careful in the details of their work. We must not imagine the best and wisest to be a lazy good-for-nothing who wearies of his work and hurries over small and easy matters. Never, never he who charges the gods with neglect has been forced to admit his error but i should like further to persuade him that the author of all has made every part for the sake of the whole and that the smallest part has an appointed state of action or passion and that the least action or passion of any part has a presiding minister You, we say to him, are a minute fraction of this universe, created with a view to the whole. The world is not made for you, but you for the world. For the good artist considers the whole first and afterwards the parts. And you are annoyed at not seeing how you and the universe are all working together for the best, so far as the laws of the common creation admit. The soul undergoes many changes from her contact with bodies, and all that the player does is to put the pieces into their right places. What do you mean? I mean that God acts in the way which is simplest and easiest. Had each thing been formed without any regard to the rest, the transposition of the cosmos would have been endless. But now there is not much trouble in the government of the world. For when the king saw the actions of the living souls and bodies, and the virtue and vice which were in them, and the indestructibility of the soul and body, although they were not eternal, he contrived so to arrange them that virtue might conquer and vice be overcome as far as possible giving them a seat and room adapted to them, but leaving the direction of their separate actions to men's own wills, which make our characters to be what they are. That is very probable. All things which have a soul possess in themselves the principle of change, and in changing move according to fate and law, Natures which have undergone lesser changes move on the surface, but those which have changed utterly for the worse sink into Hades and the infernal world. And in all great changes for good and evil, which are produced either by the will of the soul or the influence of others, there is a change of place. The good soul which has intercourse with the divine nature passes into a holier and better place, and the evil soul, as she grows worse, changes her place for the worse. This, as we declare to the youth who fancies that he is neglected of the gods, is the law of divine justice, the worse to the worse, the better to the better, like to like in life and in death, and from this law no man will ever boast that he has escaped Even if you say, I am small and will creep into the earth, or I am high and will mount to heaven, you are not so small or so high that you shall not pay the fitting penalty either here or in the world below. This is also the explanation of the seeming prosperity of the wicked, in whose actions as in a mirror you imagined that you saw the neglect of the gods, not considering that they make all things contribute to the whole, and how then could you form any idea of true happiness if Clinius and Megillus and I have succeeded in persuading you that you know not what you say about the gods, God will help you. But if there is still any deficiency of proof, hear our answer to the third opponent. Enough has been said to prove that the gods exist and care for us, that they can be propitiated or that they receive gifts is not to be allowed or admitted for an instant. Let us proceed with the argument. Tell me, by the gods, I say, how the gods are to be propitiated by us. Are they not rulers who may be compared to charioteers, pilots, perhaps generals or physicians providing against the assaults of disease husbandmen observing the perils of the seasons, shepherds watching their flocks. To whom shall we compare them? We acknowledged that the world is full both of good and evil, but having more of evil than of good. There is an immortal conflict going on in which gods and demigods are our allies and we their property. For injustice and folly and wickedness make war in our souls upon justice and temperance and wisdom." there is little virtue to be found on earth and evil natures fawn upon the gods like wild beasts upon their keepers and believe that they can win them over by flattery and prayers and this sin which is termed dishonesty is to the soul what disease is to the body what pestilence is to the seasons what injustice is to states quite so And they who maintain that the gods can be appeased must say that they forgive the sins of men if they are allowed to share in their spoils, as you might suppose wolves to mollify the dogs by throwing them a portion of the prey. That is the argument. But let us apply our images to the gods. Are they the pilots who are won by gifts to wreck their own ships? or the charioteers who are bribed to lose the race, or the generals or doctors or husbandmen who are perverted from their duty, or the dogs who are silenced by wolves, God forbid. Are they not rather our best guardians, and shall we suppose them to fall short even of a moderate degree of human or even canine virtue, which will not betray justice for reward? Impossible. He then who maintains such a doctrine is the most blasphemous of mankind." And now our three points are proven, and we are agreed, one, that there are gods, two, that they care for men, three, that they cannot be bribed to do injustice. I have spoken warmly from a fear lest this impiety of theirs should lead to a perversion of life, and our warmth will not have been in vain if we have succeeded in persuading these men to abominate themselves and to change their ways. So let us hope. Then now, that the preamble is completed we will make a proclamation commanding the impious to renounce their evil ways and in case they refuse the law shall be added if a man is guilty of impiety in word or deed let the bystander inform the magistrates and let the magistrates bring the offender before the court and if any of the magistrates refuses to act he likewise shall be tried for impiety any one who is found guilty of such an offense shall be fined at the discretion of the court and shall also be punished by a term of imprisonment. There shall be three prisons, one for common offenses against life and property, another nearby the spot where the nocturnal council will assemble, which is to be called the House of Reformation. The third, to be situated in some desolate region in the center of the country, shall be called by a name indicating retribution." Yeah. There are three causes of impiety, and from each of them springs impieties of two kinds, six in all. First, there is the impiety of those who deny the existence of the gods. These may be honest men, haters of evil, who are only dangerous because they talk loosely about the gods and make others like themselves. But there is also a more vicious class who are full of craft and licentiousness. To this latter belong diviners, jugglers, despots, demagogues, generals, hierophants, of Private mysteries and sophists. The first class shall be only imprisoned and admonished. The second class should be put to death, if they could be many times over. The two other sorts of impiety, first of those who deny the care of the gods, and secondly of those who affirm that they may be propitiated, have similar subdivisions, varying in degree of guilt. Those who have learnt to blaspheme from mere ignorance shall be imprisoned in the house of reformation for five years at least, and not allowed to see any one but members of the nocturnal council who shall converse with them touching their soul's health. If any of the prisoners come to their right mind at the end of five years, let them be restored to sane company, but he who again offends shall die as to that class of monstrous natures who not only believe that the gods are negligent or may be propitiated but pretend to practice on the souls of quick and dead and promise to charm the gods and to effect the ruin of houses and states he, I say, who is guilty of these things, shall be bound in the central prison, and shall have no intercourse with any free man, receiving only his daily rations of food from the public slaves, and when he dies let him be cast beyond the border, and if any free man assists to bury him, he shall be liable to a suit for impiety. But the sins of the father shall not be visited upon his children, who, like other orphans, shall be educated by the state. Further, let there be a general law, which will have a tendency to repress impiety. No man shall have religious services in his house, but he shall go with his friends to pray and sacrifice in the temples. The reason of this is that religious institutions can only be framed by a great intelligence, but women and weak men are always consecrating the event of the moment. They are under the influence of dreams and apparitions, and they build altars and temples in every village and in any place where they have had a vision. The law is designed to prevent this and also to deter men from attempting to propitiate the gods by secret sacrifices, which only multiply their sins. Therefore, let the law run no one shall have private religious rights, and if a man or woman who has not been previously noted for any impiety offend in this way, let them be admonished to remove their rights to a public temple, but if the offender be one of the obstinate sort, he shall be brought to trial before the guardians, and if he be found guilty, let him die. End of the Preamble Part 9